The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. It is a delight to be with you uh, this evening uh, to look and to continue to, uh, the series in First Samuel. Uh, we'll be looking at First Samuel chapter seven, verses two to seventeen. Uh, but before we do, uh, let's let's pray together again. Our Father in heaven, uh, whose whose light is perfect, uh, converting souls, uh, whose testimony is true. Uh, providing us with wisdom, uh, would you please, because you are merciful, uh, shine your light from your word to our minds that are blind without you, uh, and show us good things uh, from your word. Uh, And grant us your Holy Spirit, Father. Grant us your Holy Spirit that he might tear out of our souls all trust in ourselves and all wisdom from our flesh, and subdue and destroy anything in us that is hostile to you. Lord, lead your wandering sheep. Uh, Lead your wandering sheep back to the truth. Whether we have been wandering for hours, weeks, or years, so that we might confess with our mouths and with the fruits in our lives that truly you are our God. Father, we ask you to give us these things through the name of your beloved Son, Christ Jesus. Amen. This is 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. 
But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. To uh, begin, uh, to get things started, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, don't have time to hear your answer, but wanted to ask you a question to get thinking in the terms of the text and where it will take us. Uh, do you think that the church in North America is blessed? Do you think there's an outpouring of blessing on the church in North America? Do you think uh, that Westminster is blessed? That there's an outpouring of blessing um, at Westminster here. Regardless of whether you're answering yes or no in your mind to either question, don't we want more? Don't we want more blessing uh, from God? And the point of this passage is to remind us how we receive God's blessing as his people. The passage is to remind us how we receive God's blessing as his people. And to see that, I want to look at the context of this passage and review sort of what we've learned over the first seven chapters of Samuel very briefly, uh, and then we'll look at the, the text specifically in more depth. So by looking at this text in context, we see that the author is drawing a very clear contrast between what happens here in chapter 7 and between what happens in chapter 4. At the end of chapter 7, we've, we've reached the conclusion of the first part of the book of Samuel. Uh, this first part tells the story of Samuel's ministry uh, just on its own right uh, before the rest of the book gets into the establishment of the monarchy uh, and the events surrounding that. So in this first part, uh, it's, it's its own section, and chapter 4 and chapter 7 have many intentional parallels. If you look back at chapter 4 and you look at verse 1, it says, "...and the word of Samuel went out to all Israel." And if you look at chapter 7 and look at verse 3, it says, And Samuel said to all Israel. In both, Israel gathers for a specific reason. In both, their main enemy, the Philistines, hear of their gathering. The specific language is used of being struck down in both passages. There's a mighty sound in both passages. Uh, the same, same word is used there. In, in one instance, it's the false misguided jubilation of Israel as the ark enters the camp, and in the other, uh, it's the sound of the Lord himself thundering. And there are Ebenezers in both passages. So all, the, all these parallels are intentional to serve and set up the contrast between Israel's approach then in chapter 4, where they see God as a tool 
to use to accomplish their own purposes versus the approach that we will see in this passage and spend more time on. So the intentional parallels set up and for us to read a direct contrast with the earlier story. The author is saying, don't try it that way. Don't try to get God's blessing by using the ark as a talisman, by, by using his worship, by the things of the Lord for your own agenda. Rather, watch how in chapter 7, watch how in this story, the Lord is at work through people responding in repentance to God's word and crying out to him through his mediator. So that's, that's, that's the context that lets us know that this is uh, set up to let us know what's going on and to, to how we get blessing as God's people. So now to walk back through the text uh, specifically, I want to divide uh, the text into three questions. So looking at uh, verses 2 to 6, uh, just looking at the question of are you returning? 7 to 11, is someone crying? And then the rest of the passage under, where are your monuments? So are you returning? Is someone crying? And where are your monuments? Just walking from the text from the beginning to the end of it. So, so first, uh, look at verses 2 through 6. Are, are you returning? Here in this passage, we see something happening. We hear of something happening in Israel. Uh, their affliction has produced something. It produces a grief. They lament after the Lord. So now, 2 Corinthians 7 would tell us that there is a grief that produces godly repentance, and there's also a grief that's just worldly. So Samuel wants to put it to a test. So if you look back at verse 3, he says this, If, if, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. See, just because people are sad about feeling far from the Lord and feeling far from his blessing doesn't necessarily mean that they are actually interested in returning to the Lord. Just because they're sad about not being blessed by God doesn't mean they're actually interested in returning to the Lord. So Samuel asks this testing question. And and this is partially just from the the fact that you can only face one way at a time. You can only face one direction at a time. And that's true both physically and spiritually. I cannot face you and face this wall at the same time. And if I were to face this wall, I couldn't face this wall without having my back to you. You can only face one way at a time. So it's possible to be sad about what you're facing and to neglect to turn. In fact, that also, as we're going to see, was when people are sad about the consequences of their sin, this, this problem can be crippling because we can gaze at the sorrowful, dirt and filth and familiar destructive spirals of our sin and feel awful about it, but we don't actually turn to face the Lord. And and, and the reason we can only face one way, spiritually speaking, is what verse 3 shows us, is that there's only one kind of returning 
that actually counts. There's only one kind of returning that is actually returning to the Lord, and that's returning with your whole heart, turning away from idols and towards the Lord and serving Him only, serving Him exclusively. Now, to, to catch the weight of this, it's crucial to remember a couple things about idolatry in Israel's history. In Israel's history, one is that idolatry was not usually an issue of doctrinal divergence. Idolatry wasn't usually an issue of doctrinal divergence. They didn't deny the Lord as God. They didn't become atheists or agnostics uh, or begin to challenge necessarily even the superiority of Yahweh. They just didn't want to limit themselves about other potential sources of blessing. They didn't want to be so exclusive. They wanted to take every possibility for blessing that they could. To, to, To use a marriage analogy, it's not that they abandoned their spouse is that they just added a lover on the side. Also, given the nature of, of the idolatry at the time, uh, there was a sensual and a cultural, it was, it was, it was the way it was done, and a, and a transactional, you scratch my back, the God will scratch yours, sort of nature to this. And, and, and the force of this idol worship means that Samuel's call to repentance, Samuel's call to return for, to the Lord from the idols was a call to self-control, saying no to desires. It was a call to a real relationship that you can't manipulate rather than this transactional nature of the idolatry and a call to standing out as strange and backward compared to the culture around. So so this is what the call to repentance and idolatry uh, was true uh, in Israel's day, and the same thing is true today for us. Do we want to be blessed as a church? what are we facing? We can only face one direction. Where are the Philistines? Let's let's look for where is there slavery and oppression in our lives. What are you serving? Where are you subject to compulsion? Where do you feel oppressed like you you just can't help yourself? Where, Where is there despair of change in your life? Do we compulsively lust, compulsively grumble? Can you just not stop criticizing, lying, gossiping? Do you compulsively check your bank account? Smartphones allow you to compulsively do all sorts of things. Do you compulsively check your bank account? Do you check your texts, your emails, your phone calls, your social media account because you are desperate to have a relationship that gives you what you want. What, what, are, what are the ways that we want to be normal in a culture where God would actually call us to be strange? Do we, do we spend and plan, our, and plan for our money in a worldly way? Do we engage in worldly entertainment choices just because everyone, even most of our Christian friends, are doing the same thing? And it's kind of nice to veg out without worrying about morality and godliness and separation from worldliness and things like that. Do we engage in worrying uh, about the United States of America with worldly hopes for it, worldly fears for it? Are we compulsively seeking to predict the next political moves one way or the other? What are you facing? Where are you looking for blessing? Where, what do you say, if only, if only I had, if only I were, if only there was? 
We could, we could go on and on and on and on with questions like this because about finding idolatry in our hearts because our, our, our hearts are, are spiritually MacGyver-ish. They're like MacGyver. We can turn anything into an idol. And we can go on and on and on because also, again, remember, the standard is not orthodoxy. The standard is not where has your doctrine gone off. It's exclusivity. Israel didn't deny God or change their doctrines and so like them, sometimes we just want to cover our bases and seek other forms of blessing. And, and that is as offensive to God as a husband taking a mistress and thinking his wife should be cool with it. We should have that exclusivity for God. And God wants the beating core of who we are as individuals and as a church to be his glory and his pleasure and the fame of Jesus. And we must turn from anything we've added seeking for blessing to God in our lives. And we need to return repeatedly. This is why uh, the first thesis of Martin Luther's famous 95 theses is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So we want to return from these things, these false hopes, but please take note. We want, to, we want to look very carefully at the text and our religion here. Take note that turning from dark things, turning from bad habits, turning from foolish, dark and dirty compulsions is not enough. Pagans do that. Encountering Buddhism, encountering Islam, or mindfulness can have a positive effect on people's habits. Cults can turn people's lives around from addiction or depression. The goal isn't turning people's life around, it's turning to the Lord. So return to the Lord. We should return to the Lord with our hearts. Even if we're merely looking away from sin and our idols, and it's many, many forms, we'll just be spinning around constantly in a dizzying frenzy. For our hearts are idle factories and we are restless people. We must turn to the Lord and not face anything else. Any turning to one side or the other, or, or sometimes if we do the spiritual equivalent of kind of turning to the side and hoping that our peripheral vision can capture something and capture the Lord, any of that is going to lead to oppression, and Jesus sets us free from that oppression. As, as Paul says to the, to the Christians in Thessalonica, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 of his letter to them. You turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So let's stop the spinning. Whatever our hearts and our lives are being ruled by and turn to the Lord and face Jesus face to face and, and follow the Israelites' lead here. A rare time that we can say that. Follow the Israelites' lead. Put away your idols, gather with God's people, and say it. We have sinned against the Lord. Confess your sin. That's why we have a corporate confession of sin every week at church. We need to say it and just out loud with God's people name our offense against God. So we can only face one way. And again, rather than merely turning from our sin, we must turn to the Lord. And one of the essential ways that we turn to the Lord is to cry out to Him. So we're in the second section, looking at verses 7 to 11. And to cry out to the Lord. As familiar trials 
and their old nemesis, their old enemies, the Philistines, come again to Israel, we see that they turn to the Lord by crying out to Him. But that's not exactly what the passage says. So we want to look, we want to look carefully. What, what does the passage actually say? Verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as the whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. So again, in this passage, in these verses, we see that they do indeed turn to the Lord. And unlike when they face the Philistines back in chapter 4, they give up trying to turn to gimmicks or religious manipulation or something like that. Rather, in their desperation, they confess their need and live out their dependence on Yahweh, their God. So the question is, what do we do when we feel threatened as the church? Do we turn to the Lord? Right? And, and unlike the mess of fighting with our idols, the mess of trying to figure out our idols, it, I'm anxious. Is my anxiety just being consumed by the cares of the world, or is it responsible consideration for the future? That, that, can, be, that can be hard to wrestle with. Here, it's not hard to wrestle with. There is a very simple litmus test. Do we turn to the Lord when we feel threatened? Well, do we pray? What place does corporate prayer for our corporate life play in our priorities as a church. Prayer, uh, as John Calvin helpfully summarized, is the chief exercise of faith. It's, it's the main thing faith does to work out. And, and if we're not praying as a church, it means we're not believing that God is who he says he is. We can have a deep theology, as deep a theology as we can, and we can manage, but if we don't pray, what's the point? Coming to God and asking for things coming to God and asking for things is the foundation for blessing. And it's it's the flip side of returning to the Lord. So you see that they put their trust and hope in God, but how? How do they do this? How do they come to him? Notice that the text doesn't actually say what I sort of said it said. It does not say that they cry out to the Lord. They come to him through a mediator. They plead with Samuel to intercede for them to God on their behalf. They have returned to the Lord, but they come to him through the help and advocacy of their mediator, Samuel. Samuel's a hero character in these first seven chapters. Uh, When we see Samuel, we think good things are going to happen in in chapters 1 through 7. But, but look at what Samuel's immediate inclination to do is. Look at verse 9. But for Samuel cries out to the Lord in faith and confidence, he makes sacrifice. He takes a nursing lamb, a lamb full of potential for life, and offers it as a whole burnt offering. Why? Why does he do this? It's simple. What could he say? 
for such a soiled and contaminated people without an atoning sacrifice. God is against sin. How could he not be? He sees its wickedness more clearly than we do. And in order for there to be peace between sinners and him, something must bear his righteous anger and judgment to make room for that peace and forgiveness. And bearing that judgment will kill whatever bears it. That's the message of the whole sacrificial system. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, without death and consuming fire. So Israel's reliance on God's mediator and his sacrifice, again, shows us the stark contrast between their self-centered religious behavior with the ark in chapter 4 and their personal returning and submission and casting themselves upon the mercy of God in this passage. But we know, and perhaps they knew, Hebrews 9 tells us that the blood of an animal doesn't actually take away our sin. And we actually sin. And so we desperately need it to be actually taken away. We need forgiveness. Repentance and prayer are great steps on our part. It's all we can do. And it can leave us wondering. We can repent. We can pray. But will we be forgiven? Will we be heard? The answer is yes in Jesus. We can be forgiven and we can be heard because Jesus is our mediator. God became man and prays for us. The gospel shows us this. The gospels tell of how Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, for he laid down his life as a sacrifice. He experienced the wrath that our sin earned and that we should bear. And when he cried out to God on the cross, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? There was no answer. There was not thundering from heaven against his enemies, because without the shedding of his blood, none of us could be forgiven. Without his body being torn, killed on the cross, none of us would have access to God. But Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. And his perfection was vindicated when he rose again from the dead three days later. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father and is our mediator so that in him we are forgiven and we are heard. First John picks up on this theme. In First John 1.9, He writes, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who are dizzy with spinning from false hope to false hope. Christ says, Come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. Who do we have to speak on our behalf. First John continues, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What sacrifice has been offered for us? 
First John continues, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the propitiation for our sins. It's all in and through and for Christ Jesus. And He's also our conquering King who will come again and give us the kind of victory that Israel's victory here at the end of the passage could only hope to point to. Which leads to our third and final question. Where are your monuments? Here we see that Samuel sets up a monument to the victory the Lord has wrought, and he calls it Ebenezer. So far, God has helped us. See, Samuel knows Israel's history. This would not be the first salvation from the Lord that it would forget. So he leverages whatever he can, just set up a stone to make sure that people remember and give glory to God for the victory and are thankful. So let's learn from that. Let's leverage whatever we can. Things that you set up in your garden, things that you set up around your house, on your phone, on your reminders list, whatever it is, so we can rehearse God's care and faithfulness and pass the knowledge of it down to another generation. We also see in this final section a vindication that God keeps His promises and that He is able to bless beyond what we can imagine. Samuel said in verse 3, if you look back at verse 3, that the results of Israel returning to the Lord would be the Philistines being defeated. And Israel's victory here is not just a one-and-done victory with the Philistines, but it spreads to entire liberation and restoration. God has accomplished all that He said He would and even done more. So, we want to be blessed. Return to the Lord. Cry out in and through the mediator and set up monuments. I want to circle back now to some brief points of application. So if the main point of this text is that it would remind us how we want to receive God's blessing as his people, as a group, as our corporate identity, and that's turning from idols to the Lord, casting himself upon us in our need, and those are the main aspects of what we want to do uh, to receive blessing, to merely repent and pray. I think the obvious application question, very obvious application question, is how can Westminster grow in these things? How can we grow in repentance and prayer? How do we encourage one another? How do we want to be a blessed church, not just individually, but together? So, first, if we want to grow in encouraging each other to, in repentance, we must grow in talking about sin particularly. What I'm talking about here is articulated in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, section 5, found on page 856 of your Trinity hymnal. Trinity hymnal is full of good stuff. 856. It says this, Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. So we want to repent particularly of particular sins. Now, there, there are many ways that we could grow in this and talking about sin, so for the sake of time, I just want to focus on one, and that is our prayer requests. I think we can lay the foundation for a revival in our friendships, in our small groups, and in our congregation by making subtle changes to our prayer requests. Here I'm following the lead of David Powelson. Prayer is this delightful, revealing opportunities where it shows us what we want. It shows us what we think we need, right? And as we're sharing prayer requests, it just 
reveals a lot about ourselves. It's what can make it a blessing and scary, right? Um, We're saying, hey, would you ask the creator of the universe and God of our salvation for something for me? And that just reveals what what we think we need. So I want to give an example from work and an example from health, two things that often come up in prayer requests. So imagine that you are a student and you have a test coming, or imagine you're an accountant and tax season's coming. What do you ask for prayer for? Please don't hesitate to pray for success, uh, for efficiency and time management, but don't stop there. Don't stay stuck in the shallows of our circumstances. Get deeper to the heart. Share with people that you need God's help to fight anxiety about your own performance, that you feel your need of God's guiding hand to protect your mind from the crippling fear of failure at whatever the task is in front of you. Or maybe you need to ask for prayer that the the, the Lord would help you repent and fight against competitiveness, where you don't just want to be successful, you want to be more successful than the other person. Maybe you need to ask for the Lord, uh, ask for other people to pray for the Lord for you in that way. Or consider health requests, right? Please pray for your friends, pray for yourself to be healed, pray for your health, pray for healing, but don't stop there. As you sit there in someone's living room and the coffee's getting cold, make it personal, not just circumstantial. Say, please pray for my health. It's been a really hard season. And would you also pray that I would be kept from selfishness? When I'm sick, it's so easy for me to only think about myself and to feel entitled. By becoming aware that sin and not your circumstances are your greatest problem, that, that it's not actually the Philistines that you need to fear, but the idols in your heart, and sharing that with your community, with prayer requests, and that, that can have a double impact of exhorting one another to fight sin in their own life, and also to just naturally grow in being able to talk about sin together. It can transform a community, slowly but surely, prayer time by prayer time. Because just think about how it sets it up for the next week, or the next month, or whenever you pray again with the same people. Hey, John, you sound much better. How did the fight against self-pity and self-absorption go? It's week two where the rubber meets the road, right? Especially if the answer is, I snapped at the kids, slacked off at work, and pretended to be, feel worse than I actually did so my wife wouldn't ask me to do anything. But brothers and sisters, do we want to be a blessed church? If we do, we want to grow of repenting of particular sins, particularly and praying together in dependence on the Lord. And if we want to do that, if we want to have that kind of transparency where we can talk about being a sinner, we need to return again and again and again to the truths about Christ the mediator and Christ the sacrifice. See, 1 John foresees this. And right before the passage that we read, it says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then it continues, if we confess our sins, etc. So as a church, let's not tempt one another with our prayer requests to deceive each other by acting and praying as if we have no sin. So first application point, we want to grow in talking about sin. 
And the one way we can do that is to be more intentional with the kinds of things we ask for prayer for. Make them personal. And, and this is a point where if, if we can be a community that does that, it will bless those beyond the church. Like the peace in the passage that spreads to the Amorites. There is a longing for people, in people, for just simple personal integrity. For people to be who they say we are. Be who they say they are. To not hide behind pretension and pomp. To not hide behind humor and sarcasm. For people to just be real with each other. And being grumpy and selfish when you are sick is real. So that's the first application. Second, much more briefly, to grow in prayer together, we should pray together. To grow in prayer together, we should pray together. Prayer is hard. Let's bear that burden together. Pray together. Take advantage of all the prayers just in the worship services. Pray with the pastor and the elder as he leads us. Right? Gather together to pray. Don't just hold back. Don't just, don't just not pray together because you feel inadequate or you feel inauthentic because you don't have a private prayer life going. Prayer's hard. Don't do it on your own. Pray together. Lean on the body of Christ. Let's get together and pray. So, we want to apply this by changing our prayer requests and by changing and by praying together. And finally, we want to ponder the promises of Christ. That's the third way that we want to grow in repentance and grow in prayer. We want to ponder the promises of Christ. See, in our text, Samuel has promised deliverance from the Philistines. He promises that real, tangible blessings will flow from returning to the Lord. Just no more Philistines. What does Jesus promise us? What does Jesus offer? Let's consider. He offers us himself in his presence. He offers us refreshing, living water of life. He offers us the truth. He offers us peace and rest for our souls. He offers us cleansing from guilt. He offers us freedom from shame. He offers us a new family of brothers and sisters. He offers us new life in him. He offers us continual prayers for us before the throne. He offers us reconciliation with God. He offers us his very body and his blood. He offers us the Holy Spirit. And these are just the tangible blessings that he offers us on this side of eternity. The kind of peace that Samuel presided over and the kind of success his ministry have point us to a better kingdom and a better land. Consider the glorious blessing that awaits when Christ comes again. We will have full and final salvation from our sin. We will be glorified in a state of irrevocable, unchangeable holiness. There will be no more threats, temptations, no tears, no sadness, no death. And there will be life everlasting. And we won't need a monument because Jesus will be there. And we can see him face to face. 
We will be united to him finally, our heavenly husband, the lover of our souls. Brothers and sisters, we will be a church blessed beyond imagining forever and ever and ever. Jesus offers us that hope and promise the best days are yet to come. Jesus offers us all this. But count the cost. Consider the cost to yourself. The cost is come. Come. Accept his invitation. The feast is free to you because it cost him his life. He says, as we sung earlier, come to the Savior, the God of salvation. God has provided an end to sin's strife. Why will you suffer the law's condemnation? Take the free gift of the water of life. Turn your face away from your idols. Turn your face from yourself. Turn to Jesus, the righteous, who can be your advocate and the propitiation for your sin, in whom you will receive all the Father's blessing. Let's pray. Mighty God, as we see uh, you in your mercy, turn these Israelites to yourself uh, to receive your blessing. Uh, Lord, would you work in us at Westminster uh, and throughout the land and throughout the world uh, that all people may know the power of Jesus' blood to save. Amen.